Well, in 1949, you might remember in your history, this was the year of the breakout Billy Graham crusade in Los Angeles. This is what brought Billy Graham to the public's attention officially. And a lot of great things had happened there. Uh, That's where Louis Zamperini, some of you watched the movie Unbroken sometime back. That's when Louis Zamperini became a Christian. Uh, Stuart Hamblin was one of the singing cowboys, a friend of John Wayne and Roy Rogers. That's when he became a Christian. 1949 was a happening time in Los Angeles while Billy Graham was there. Well, there was in Los Angeles at that time a gangster named Mickey Cohen. And Mickey Cohen was a pretty big deal in Los Angeles. The mayor of Los Angeles would use him from time to time as a fixer for various things that needed to happen off the books. And the sheriff uh, of Los Angeles was on the payroll of the gangster Mickey Cohen. Well, a movie producer during that uh, heady time of uh, crusades and everything with Billy Graham decided to have a gathering of Hollywood glitterati at his own house Uh, 50 or 60 people gathered to hear Billy Graham in his living room and uh, Mickey Cohen was invited and Mickey Cohen was interested. And in those days, remember, he's rubbing shoulders with people like Humphrey Bogart and Sammy Davis Jr. And he'd be at nightclubs and all of these Hollywood types would come and sit with him. So he was invited to come to this get together at a movie producer's house with Billy Graham for personal time. Well, reporters heard that Mickey Cohen might be interested in such a thing, so they were trying to follow him, and he told his driver, make sure you lose the reporters, because I don't want a lot of people to know that I'm going to a religious gathering with Billy Graham at the movie producer's house. So they lose the reporters, they arrive at the house, and Billy Graham does his little presentation, and then one of his friends, Jim Voss, stands up and says, or actually it was Edward J. Orr, uh, J. Edward Orr, uh, he stood up and he said, now we have these little Gospel of Johns, and if any of you are interested in reading about Jesus tonight, uh, when you go home or any other time, uh, if you want a copy of this little Gospel of John, raise your hand. Mickey Cohen raised his hand, he was given a copy of the Gospel of John. And so that was that. Uh, people were encouraged that this gangster was interested in the Gospel. Well, then Mickey Cohen got caught with uh, tax evasion problems. He went to prison, and he was in prison until 1955. 1955, he was released, but now he is sort of a sketchy person in the minds of a lot of Hollywood types, and they don't really want to have a lot to do with him. He's also lost a lot of his credibility in the underworld, and so he's not the same person he was in 1949. Now he's a little bit broken down. He has... A friend, you might say, um, Bill Jones. Bill Jones used to be quite a gambler, alcoholic in that orbit where, you know, Mickey Cohen ran the gambling. And so Bill Jones and Mickey Cohen are are well acquainted. Bill Jones also is a convert from the Billy Graham crusade. And so Bill, Bill Jones keeps witnessing to Mickey Cohen. Now we fast forward to 1957. 1957, Billy Graham is now in uh, his Madison Square Garden uh, in New York crusade. And uh, things are going great guns there. Again, that was a really big time in Billy Graham's life. This is 1957. And Bill Jones actually leads Mickey Cohen in the sinner's prayer. So this is how a person becomes a Christian. Well, news got out, uh, not only in the Billy Graham organization, but then reporters found out that Mickey Cohen had converted to the Christian faith. So now is a really big deal, and somebody paid for Mickey Cohen 
to fly from Los Angeles to New York so that he could go to the Madison Garden Crusade. And the thought was when he gets there to the crusade, he's going to come out publicly as a convert of Billy Graham. So he even posed for the reporters in front of a a supersized poster with Billy Graham's picture on it and a Madison Square Garden, you know, advertisement of, of the crusade. And so that was the deal. But what really happened is there was no public statement. Mickey Cohen really didn't say anything at all. He went back home and eventually he was seen uh, associating with the old crowd, you know, the underworld, the gangsters and criminals. And his friend Bill Jones eventually came to him and said, look, Mickey, now that you're a Christian, you really can't be around these people doing these kinds of things. And then Mickey Cohen dug in. He said, Jones, you never told me I had to give up my career. You never told me that I had to give up my friends. There are Christian movie stars, Christian athletes, Christian businessmen. So what's the matter with being a Christian gangster? If I have to give up all that, if that's Christianity, count me out. So that was the end of it. In 1976, uh, Mickey died. And of course, we don't know where he is today. Heaven or hell. Who knows? But today what we're talking about is a Christian's obligation to follow Jesus, to do the right thing, to practice righteousness. And we come to chapter 6 in the book of Romans, having just discussed the beauties of this doctrine of righteousness being gifted by faith alone in the blood of Jesus Christ. Having understood that this is all by grace, chapter 6 opens up and says, so should we continue in sin since it's all by grace? And, And that's where we are today. So we have two big ideas today. It would be madness, unthinkable, irrational, outrageous, shameful for us who have been, in the first place, immersed into the spirit-empowered body of Christ to cave into temptation like we're just some kind of a weakling. If we're spirit-empowered to resist temptation, it'd be a travesty for us just to cave into it all the time. And secondly... It would be madness for us who've been immersed into the awe-inspiring accounts of Christ's grace and gifting to slap him in the face by living badly. I mean, who could do such a thing? So those are the two big ideas that are being talked about in Romans chapter 6, and they will form the skeleton of all of my remarks uh, this morning. So righteousness is a gift. I mean, we established that, I think, crystal clear last week. Righteousness is a gift. But it is simply unsatisfactory for any believer to live badly. So this is how Romans 6 starts out. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That is, in order to showcase God's grace even more, let's just be rotten and then God will really look great and generous. Well, the answer to that is God forbid, or we would say, may God never even permit such a thing. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Like, how can you think this way? The idea is not to multiply our sins. The idea is to live well now that we have become Christians. And we are going to be introduced in chapter 6 to a really big idea in the Christian faith, particularly a big idea in the theology of the Apostle Paul. The idea being immersed into Christ, baptized into Christ's death, 
baptized into Christ's burial, baptized into Christ's resurrection. It's a really big, complicated theological idea, and we're being introduced to it in Romans chapter 6. But it's so important, and I hope to break it down so that it'll be uh, simple for you. Uh, We're being immersed. The word baptized means immersed. So again, look at chapter 6, verse 3, as we have it here. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized, immersed into Jesus Christ, were baptized, immersed into his death? That is, we are um, having our sins placed on Jesus at Calvary, on the cross, and he's going to die for those sins. Now we're going to be immersed in the accounts of Jesus, like a bank account. And your sin was credited to Christ on the cross. That kind of an account. And Christ's righteousness is credited to you since your day of conversion, whenever that was for you. So you see, it's like bank accounts and you have credits, uh, deposits. Your sins deposited in Christ's account, Christ's perfect, infinite righteousness deposited in your account. So in other words, you are participating in that sense in the accounts of Christ. You have been immersed in the accounts of Christ. It's really a big concept, isn't it? All right. And you see where it says in yellow font there, immersed into Christ. And then I've added a couple of words to help you with this idea. Because when you read in the scripture, you'll see, first of all, that we are immersed in the body of Christ, which we'll talk about more. And Jesus talked about himself as being like the vine and we are the branches. And, of course, the sap of the vine runs through all the branches. And you're immersed into this network of the Lord's power, his powerful sap, if you will, flowing from him into us. And so you're immersed in that. And you're immersed into his accounts, which we just talked about, like bank accounts. And you're immersed into his family. So we have some big ideas going on here. Uh, So many of us as have been baptized into Christ, have been baptized into his death, immersed, but we're not talking about water baptism here. It's really important that you know that because you know when a person is baptized in water, he could be faking. And none of the spiritual realities we're talking about in Romans 6 are his. He's just faking. So we're talking about spirit baptism. You are immersed in the accounts of Christ and nobody can fake that immersed into the vine of Christ. And nobody can fake that. That's the real thing. So we're not talking about water baptism here. We're talking about spirit baptism. This is why 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, by one spirit are we all immersed, baptized into one body. We're not talking about being baptized in water. We're talking about being baptized, immersed into the body of Christ. And you can have fakers who are immersed in water but you can't have fakers who are immersed in the body of christ if they're in the body of christ that's a a spiritual reality uh romans 6 3 says do you not know that as many of us as we're baptized immersed into jesus christ we're baptized immersed into his death so we'll walk in newness of life so this is immersion spiritually happens on the inside and it has not much to do with water baptism except water baptism is a symbol a picture of this actual spiritual reality all right Now, here's where we're going in chapter 6. We see that as this unfolds in Paul. We see that being immersed in Christ, sin is never irresistible. Don't say, I just can't resist it. Oh, if you have been immersed in the sap of Christ and his vine and branches, if you've been immersed in the spirit-empowered body of Christ, oh, you can resist sin. Yes, you can. So being immersed in Christ's sin is never irresistible. It's resistible. 
And we are all duty-bound to resist it well, to put up a for real fight against the sin. Duty-bound because we have been added to the accounts of Christ. He has been so good. He has transferred his infinite righteousness to us. Is that not nice? Now we are duty-bound to treat him well and not to live in direct opposition to everything he stands for. So you see, we are duty-bound for this. Immersed in Christ, immersed in his spear-empowered body, in the sap of his vine and branches, in his accounts, in his family, we are immersed. All right. The term is going to come up. We are crucified with Christ in this baptism. We are baptized into his death. And you think, what does that even mean? I was crucified with Christ. I wasn't there. When Jesus hung on the cross. So what does that mean? I'm crucified with Christ. What does that mean? Well, it's true that you weren't there 2,000 years ago when Jesus hung on the cross. But your sins were sure there, weren't they? Because in Isaiah 53, it says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You weren't there? Well, your sins were sure there. Uh, Peter says, Christ's own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree. You weren't there? Okay, well, your sins sure were because your sins were on him when he died on the cross. Oh, you were there in that sense. You were participating in a big way that day because Jesus was dying for your sins that were laid on him. In that sense, you were there. You were baptized. You were immersed in Christ as he hung on the cross. Now, all this, again, has so much to do with his accounts. Your immersion into Christ's body, his spirit-empowered body, his vine with his sap flowing through the entire vine and branches, his family. You know what that did? That also made you a new creature in Christ. You are a new person. Sometimes the Bible talks about the old man, the old person you used to be, and the new man, the new person you are now. That's because that sap from the vine started flowing through you, one of the branches, and you're really just not the same anymore as you were before your conversion. So now we're finding that we are immersed in Christ's accounts, which is wonderful, and we're also immersed in the sap that flows from the vine and the branches, the Holy Spirit atmosphere, which is in you and around you because you've been immersed into the family of God. It's making you a different person. As a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Old things have passed away. And isn't that an interesting way to say it? Because here's the way we talk about dead people today. If we want to be polite, we say, Oh, my aunt passed away. That's exactly the language of Scripture. The old person you used to be has passed away. You're a new person. You've been immersed in the spirit-empowered body of Christ, immersed in the sap that flows from the vine to all the little branches, you're immersed in that. And that's changed you. You're really just not the old person you used to be. That person has passed away. Well, in exactly the same way, we are risen with Christ. You say, well, I was not there in the tomb when Jesus came out of the tomb. You perhaps were not there physically, but your wealth sure was. Because all the righteousness that you now have in heaven's accounts, that's what Jesus carried when he walked out of the tomb. So you were baptized, you were immersed in Christ when your sins were laid on him on the cross. And you're immersed in Christ when he came up out of that tomb holding your treasure, your everlasting righteousness. Say, well, I wasn't there. Maybe not. But your inheritance 
sure was. So now that really, again, has made you a new person. Not only are your accounts different, right? Because you've been immersed in the accounts of Jesus. Wow, what a difference that is. But also, now his life-giving sap is flowing from him, the vine, to you, all the branches. And you're just not the same anymore. Now, the Holy Spirit, who has a special power that latches onto every single person, not only onto, but into every single person at the moment of his conversion, that power courses through your personality. And the old person you used to be has passed away. You're immersed in the accounts and you're immersed in the life. You have been joined together with Christ. So, to recap, we are crucified with Christ on paper, you know, on the accounts in heaven. On paper. Our sins were there with Jesus on the cross and now perfect righteousness has been credited to us by the death of Jesus for us. And so our accounts are merged. We are immersed in the account of Christ and in the wealth of Christ. And this is true in our daily experience. We are crucified with Christ in the sense that our old self really has passed away. We have new sap flowing through us. We have the life of the Holy Spirit flowing through us. And we're really just not the same. Same thing with being risen with Christ. On paper, right? We have in our heavenly account the wealth of Jesus' infinite righteousness. We've been immersed in wealth. Immersed in the account of his righteousness. And we have been immersed in the sap that flows from his vine into our branches and from the Holy Spirit who latches onto and into every person who's in the body of Christ. It's an amazing thing. So, in Christ, sin will never be, if you are a Christian, sin will never be irresistible. It simply cannot be irresistible because the sap of the vine is flowing through you. Because the Holy Spirit has empowered every member of his church to have this special personality. Old things are passed away. You're new. And not only can we resist sin, that's our capacity. Not only can we resist sin, we're duty bound to do it. We are compelled. The love of Christ constrains us, compels us. I mean, we cannot just live as a perpetual slap in the face to the Savior who's been so good to us. So we can resist sin. And love compels us. It's our duty to resist sin. Andre is so, she's so good on this. And uh, I refer to her from time to time because I like this so much. Uh, she was writing an article for World Magazine uh, sometime back. And obviously she's, she's a devoted Christian. She says, I was sitting down to write a column about something or other when I noticed a vague gnawing at my insides. It had been going on for some time, and I had been trying to ignore it or to live with it. The sin I was entertaining was covetousness. I traced its onset to a single sentence in a letter received that day. I was not bothering to wage war on this sin because of both self-protection and unbelief. We don't believe it will do any good to resist. We don't believe God can or will do anything about our bondage. We've been told that we should not expect much now. You know, everybody sins. You have your sins. I have mine. You know, that's just how we have to live. So she says, you know, where our minds drift to when alone, that is rubber meets the road reality. And Jesus came to deal with it. By deal with it, do you mean just forgive it? Or do you mean nuke it? There is the $64,000 question. 
how much personal sanctification is available in a lifetime. Where is the ceiling? Just forensic forgiveness, you know, just like on paper. We're forgiven on paper. That's all we can hope for. Is that it? Or is it being transformed from one degree to another in a way that your husband or wife would notice the difference? In a way that you could sit at your computer and be free. And then she asks, is there a doctor in the house who can teach spiritual warfare? Is there anyone who believes it does any good? So, is it true? Are we immersed in the accounts of Christ only? And we're so thankful that his infinite righteousness now is merged with our myriad sins. And infinity beats myriad, so we get to stay in heaven forever. We're immersed in the accounts, no question. But is that all? What if we are also immersed in the life-giving sap that comes from the vine to the branches? The life-giving power of the Holy Spirit that is in us and on us as members of the body of Christ. Then that would mean it's not just forensic, legal, on-paper forgiveness. We might actually be able to nuke this sin and not live with it. In Christ, sin is never irresistible. You can resist it. And it is our duty to resist it. It would be madness. This is the Apostle Paul's argument, which we're going to read right through in a minute now that I've laid this theological background. Paul's argument is, it would be madness, outrageous, shameful, unreasonable to think that we who have been immersed in the Spirit-empowered body of Christ have to surrender to temptation like we're just weaklings. How could we possibly think such a thing? That's outrageous. Uh, That's unreasonable. And it would be outrageous. It would be unreasonable. It would be madness to think that we are not duty-bound in light of the goodness of Christ, that we are not duty-bound out of gratitude to live well for Jesus. And so, now, We're going to read the text. I am just going to do a running commentary on this. And hopefully you'll be able to see from the foundation we've laid how all of this fits into the thinking of the Apostle Paul and our relationship to living a godly life. Romans 6.1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, so that God's generosity will really be showcased by our rottenness? God forbid. May God... Never even allow such a prospect to enter our minds. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? I mean, if the sap of the vine is flowing through our veins, if the Holy Spirit is in us and on us, how could we possibly just live in sin? What kind of a crazy idea would that be? That'd be madness. That's shameful. Verse 3. Do you not know that as many as of us as have been immersed, baptized, immersed into Jesus Christ, were baptized, immersed into his death, into his accounts? Your sins were laid on him and he died for them. Into his accounts and also now his sap flowing through us, his Holy Spirit working. And we're different people. The old man has passed away. So we have been baptized into Jesus Christ's death. Therefore, we're buried with him. The old person used to be is just gone. You have new sap running through your veins now. You have the Holy Spirit making you a superman, a superwoman, 
Therefore, we're buried with him by baptism into his death. In his accounts, yes, but also new sap coursing through us. That as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. You have a new life. New accounts, for sure, which is so wonderful. But also new sap coursing through you. The Holy Spirit making you different so the old person has passed away. For if we've been planted together, and you see the idea there of um, burial, planted. If we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, you know, his sins were on us. He was buried. He came up alive again. The old person that you used to be, before his sap started running through your veins, before the Holy Spirit started infecting you, conjoined with your spirit and personality, that old person has been buried. It's gone. If we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Not just his accounts that we get to live in heaven forever, which is, you know, the very best thing, but also here in this life with his sap flowing through us. Now we're going to be like him. We're going to live like he lives. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. You know, our account is so different now. It's as if, you know, he died for our sins. It's, it's as if we had never sinned, which is just so wonderful. We've been immersed into that wonderful account of Jesus. Our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed. You know, the old person we used to be is just gone. We have new sap running through us. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. For he that is dead, oh, so that we should no longer serve sin. You don't have to serve sin. Sin is resistible. You don't have to do it. That's the point, right? It says you don't have to. You don't have to serve sin anymore. Sin is not your boss. You're not a weakling. For he that is dead is free from sin. Now, if we are dead with Christ, if he has new sap running through our veins, so the old person is gone, and now we're a new person. If we are dead with Christ and risen with him, we believe that we shall live with him, not only uh, in eternity, which is, you know, first and foremost, but also he's living with us now, right? His spirit is in us. We're living with him at this very moment. Verse 9, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead, he dies no more. It's all taken care of. This isn't going to happen over and over again. It's done. It's the finished work of Christ. Death doesn't have dominion over Jesus anymore, right? Jesus did succumb to death once, but that's done. And now we are with him. For in that Jesus died, he died unto sin once, but in that he lives, he lives unto God. So death is, in the Bible, death is a departure. And the Lord broke off from sin. That's done. Death is a departure. And now he lives, he lives unto God. That is, he lives for God, for his purpose, for the outcomes that God loves. And so, verse 11, you do that too. Likewise, count yourselves also to be dead indeed unto sin. Not just in your heavenly accounts, but I mean, that's the first and foremost. That's so great. But also in your life, you have New sap running through your veins. You don't have to do this anymore. You have the Holy Spirit of God in you, cohabitating with your own human spirit and giving you power you never had before. You're not a weakling anymore. So you count yourselves also to be dead indeed unto sin. You're a new person. The old person has passed away. You don't have to do this. Dead unto sin, but alive unto God. 
That is, now you are vitally attached to God and God is your boss and you want God's outcomes for your life, just like Jesus, right? Same thing. And all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse 12 at the bottom. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. You don't have to cave into this stuff. Do not let sin be your boss. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lusts of your mortal body. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. You say, well, I'm just going to do the wrong thing and now you've become a servant of sin. Don't yield your uh, physical members, your bodily members, as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves to God. He's your boss. As those who are alive from the dead. Yield to God like someone who has superpower of his sap flowing through your veins. His Holy Spirit joined with your human spirit to give you ideas that you never had before. And emotions you never had before. And power that you never had before. Verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. That's uh, in the sense of the future. From your conversion forward. Sin is not the boss. Now, you can make it the boss, but you didn't need to. You had the capacity to throw off sin. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you're not under the law. Back to that discussion, because the thing about the Old Testament law was that it was external. I mean, imagine Moses, the uh, personification of the Old Testament law, telling you, reprimanding you, saying, listen here, you have to straighten up and fly right. And Moses is right. But Moses doesn't have any way to get inside your heart and change you. You know what does? The Holy Spirit. Now, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit will still point his finger at you and say, hey, pal, you have to straighten up and fly right. But he's also going to reach inside your heart and give you the superpower so that you can. You are not under the law, but under grace. You have a generous gift of the Holy Spirit in your heart so that you are free. You don't have to obey sin. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? Oh no, what a terrible idea. Right, you have now uh, such a generous salvation, so we should take advantage of God's generosity. How horrible. Verse 16, do you not know that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey his servants you are? To whom you obey, whether of sin and death or obedience and righteousness? Like you get to choose and you are choosing. Like if you were captured and sold into slavery, that's one thing. But you're choosing to whom you yield yourselves. You get to choose. Are you going to yield to God or yield to sin? Whichever you want. You're not on the slave blocks at the slave market. You choose. But if you choose to yield yourselves unto sin, that's a very different choice than yielding yourself to God. Verse 17. God, be thanked that you were once, you were once on the slave blocks to sin. But now you've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. That was your conversion experience. Being then made free from sin. Sin is not your master. You're free. You could still choose to do wrong, but that would be your choice, not because you were captured as a slave. Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. In verse 19, Paul says, 
I speak after the manner of men, uh, talking about human slavery and masters, you know, as a metaphor, uh, because of the infirmity of your flesh, because these are hard things to understand, invisible and eternal things that you can't see, abstract concepts. But as you have yielded your members as servants to uncleanness and to iniquity, even so, now you yield your members as servants to righteousness and holiness. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free, detached from righteousness. And what would have happened to you then? What was that going to lead you to? What fruit did you have then in those things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, including the second death. If you had continued on that path, you would have gone to hell. And the end. But now, being made free, you have the sap of the Lord's life flowing through you. You have the Holy Spirit in your heart, changing your heart, making the old things pass away. Everything's new. Being made free from sin and being made the servants of righteousness. You have your food unto holiness and the end of that, everlasting life. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, including the second death in the lake of fire. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's how it ends. In 1999, a pastor from inner city Los Angeles wrote this. He says, we know by experience that most of the people here consider themselves born-again Christians. You just walk along the street and say, hey, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. And things have changed a little bit since 1999, but you could imagine the situation. We know by experience that most of the people here in the inner city of Los Angeles consider themselves born-again Christians because they have made some sort of decision. Looking out the window of my house during the riot, I saw buildings burning and people running down the street with things they had looted from nearby stores. They would have told you that they believed in the Lord and had the Lord in their hearts with them as they ran into buildings to steal smash and burn. I could only lock the doors and look out the windows as the Christians of Los Angeles burned my neighborhood, and I hoped that these brothers in the Lord would not seek out my family huddled inside our house. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? We don't know if those people are Christians or not. We don't know. But we know that's Madness. We know that's outrageous. We know that's shameful. We know that's unreasonable. Now notice that in all of this discussion, Paul says, yeah, you know, it's unreasonable. He doesn't say it's impossible. The Bachelorette TV show 2019 season features two contestants who were open about their Christian faith. The Bachelorette explained I have had sex, and honestly, Jesus still loves me. The Christian bachelor was very chagrined that she was doing this whole thing during the show, and he told her so. He said, I would not be interested in pursuing this any longer. And she said, I don't owe you anything. And guess what? A man does not control anything I do. And she did an obscene gesture toward him, as he drove away. I mean, she's just bitter about it. Explaining her theology on entertainment tonight, she said, regardless of anything that I've done, well, people might think, oh, that deserves a scarlet letter. That's not how it works. I can do whatever. I sin daily and Jesus still loves me. It's all washed and if the Lord doesn't judge me and it's all forgiven, 
then no other man or woman can judge me. And she also added that religion itself is not legitimate unless one has a personal relationship with Jesus and she won't stand for shaming or judgment. In a subsequent episode of the show, she did indeed have a segment of the show in which she was having this liaison with one of the men in a windmill. And uh, she knew this would make the Christian bachelor in the show uneasy. So she was talking to him and she said, yeah, I've done this. And she used bad words to describe this. Yeah, I've done this. And honestly, Jesus still loves me from obviously how you feel. uh, Me doing this deed in a windmill, you probably want to leave. And every Christian who has ever read Romans 6 also probably wants to leave. (laughs) Um, Paul says, are you serious? You've been immersed in the accounts of Jesus and you want to live like this? And you keep saying, well, I'm immersed in the accounts. I'm forgiven. I'm washed. I'm immersed in the accounts. Yeah, yeah. Well, what about this? Have you been immersed in the spirit-empowered body of Christ? Well, maybe she is. I'm sure I don't know. But I'm sure this is madness. I'm sure this is outrageous. I'm sure this is unthinkable. I'm sure this is shameful and sinful. And I learned that from Romans 6 for sure. The amazing reality of being in Christ is that we are in him contractually immersed in his accounts, which is what makes us saved anyway. But we also learn that we are in him mechanically because his Holy Spirit lives in our heart and makes a spiritual mechanical connection. His sap is flowing through our veins. And we're also in Christ relationally. I'm going to skip right to that one because our time is short. Uh, Here's where we want to be. Relationally. God has chosen us in Christ. See, immersed in Christ, right? God has chosen us immersed in Christ that we should be before him in love. That's a relationship. Ephesians 1, 6. He has made us accepted in the beloved. That's in Christ. We're accepted. That's so nice. In Romans 8, 38, I'm persuaded that no person or thing shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ. It's very relational. John 15, 7, abide in me as my Father has loved me. So have I loved you. Continue in my love. You are in me, immersed in me. Now continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. See, it's very relational. These things I've spoken to you that my joy might remain in you, the Holy Spirit in you, you know, empowering you, new sap running through your veins. And that your joy might be full. I've spoken to you that in me, immersed in me, you would have peace. It's very relational. In Romans chapter 5, we have many of the same ideas. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We are immersed in grace. Isn't that great? It's so relational. Becky, and we'll close with this. Becky Terabassi is now 45 years sober and has been married for 45 years and is still serving the Lord. But it wasn't always that way. As a young woman, she became an alcoholic. Her wake-up call came one day when she was driving drunk. She caused an accident, and, you know, that was criminal. It just so happened 
that uh, the ambulance took everybody away. And by the time the police got there, there couldn't be a breathalyzer test. And so she was not charged with a DUI. She was charged with reckless driving. But this was a wake-up call. And she knew she better get her heart right. And she became a Christian. So she returned home to her hometown. And she was staying with her mother as a relatively new Christian. She said she wanted to get together with her old friends. Um, Bad influences, right? The first night with the old gang proved easier than I'd expected. She wants to stick to her guns as a Christian, right? We just uh, sat around laughing and talking. Drinks were offered and a few people laughed when I told them I didn't drink anymore. No one laughed, though, when I explained by saying I'd become a born-again Christian and quickly summarized the recent spiritual changes in my life. And there's someone launched the conversation in another direction and I didn't feel any pressure to drink. And when someone suggested going out to dinner the next night, I quickly agreed. So, all good. But then, at dinner, the second time, she decided to get a glass of wine with her dinner. And this was the first alcohol she had tasted in weeks. And then she, and it was a large serving of wine that that restaurant offered. And she got another serving of wine. And she had a pretty good buzz going by the time it was time for her to go home. She went home and her mother, who is a Christian, still kept wine in the house. And she knew it. And she was still weak from her previous uh, hours in the evening. So she got her mother's wine out and she drank the whole bottle. She said, when I looked at the empty wine jug sitting on the floor beside me, I knew I was drunk and I cried myself to sleep. She felt like a failure. She said, but the tone of my prayer changed from pleading to accusing as I changed the subject. What happened last night, God? I thought you took away all the desire to drink, but I was drunk again. I felt angry and disillusioned with God. And then it hit me. God really had taken away my desire to drink unless I drank. Then the alcohol took control. For me, there was no such thing as moderation. And that thought scared me. I realized for the first time how different my life was going to have to be. You see what's happening there? There is the capacity to have victory over sin. You can do it. But you're going to have to take it seriously. And she realized that she needed to take it much more seriously after that night. So, righteousness is not only a gift. It is also a capacity and a duty. It would be madness, unthinkable, shameful, irrational, a travesty for us who've been immersed in the spirit-empowered body of Christ with his sap flowing through us and his Holy Spirit making us super people to surrender to temptation like we're some kind of sissies. We're not. And it would be a travesty for us who have been immersed in the gracious, generous accounts of Christ to live our lives as a slap in his face every day. You don't have to cave into sin. And you're duty-bound not to. That's Romans 6. 